Welcome to this special presentation of the unabridged audiobook of Afterlife, a rainy day investigation on the Bedtime Stories for Insomniacs fiction podcast. Afterlife was inspired by a real-life investigation conducted by co-author and parapsychologist Lloyd Auerbach that was the case that made him believe in ghosts. Although Afterlife is book two in the series, you can enjoy it as a standalone story. However, you'll likely also want to listen to Near Death, the novel that introduces Dr. Jennifer Day, anthropology professor and parapsychologist, to her skeptical partner, former police detective Nate Rainey. In Afterlife, Danny, a young boy, makes friends with the ghost of a woman, Maureen, who used to live in the house his family has moved into. He's the only one who can see and hear her. Maureen died 15 years earlier, trying to make her escape from a botched bank robbery, at which time she hid millions of dollars in cash and valuables. Unfortunately, she can't remember where, but that's not going to stop her old partners from doing everything they can to find their long-lost treasure, no matter what the cost. If you enjoyed this free presentation, I hope you'll take a minute to post a review on Amazon, Audible, and Goodreads, as well as your favorite podcast app. And don't forget to listen to Near Death, along with my weekly short stories, here on Bedtime Stories for Insomniacs. And now, Part 8 of Afterlife, A Rainy Day Investigation, by Rich Hosick, Arnold Rudnick, and Lloyd Auerbeck. Chapter 26 The house belonging to Jennifer's psychic friend was large and luxurious, without being extravagant. They had assessed it to be worth millions, considering it was not only a spacious building, but sat on a large plot of land. They pulled up and parked near the front door. The three of them got out of the car and took in the impressive home. Are you sure this is the right house? Eleanor asked. Jennifer laughed. Yes, this is it. I've been here before. It looks like a lot, but Sam inherited it. I would have been more impressed if he told us he made a killing in the stock market, being a psychic and all, Nate commented. His abilities don't include precognition, Jennifer told him. He's a medium and also can do psychometry. Psychometry? Eleanor asked. He has the ability to get impressions from objects by touching them. Jennifer explained. Especially if it's money, Nate remarked under his breath. Jennifer elbowed him in the side. You promised me you would behave this time, Nathaniel, Eleanor warned. The only reason Eleanor agreed to come see Jennifer's friend was because Nate had apologized and promised to keep his skepticism to himself. Exacting the apology and promise from Nate was the easy part. Getting him to keep it was what worried Jennifer. Before she could remind Nate of what he agreed to, he turned to Eleanor and put his arm around her. You're right, Mom. I'm sorry, he said. I promise. I'm going to just sit back, watch, listen, and be here for you. Okay? Thank you, Eleanor said. Nate pulled her into a hug. It seemed to Jennifer that there was so much more communicated between them in that moment than in the years of their tumultuous relationship since the death of Nate's father. Ready? Jennifer asked. Nate and Eleanor separated and Nate offered her his arm. She slipped her own around it, and they followed Jennifer up the steps to the front door. Jennifer rang the doorbell, and a short moment later it opened to reveal a tall, athletic man, who was from Nate's point of view obnoxiously handsome. Jennifer, so good to see you, he said, the instant his eyes fell upon her. He stepped forward and gave her a quick kiss. The gesture caught the Rainies off guard. Hello, I'm Sam, the man said. You must be Eleanor and Nate. Please, come in. Nate gave Jennifer a curious look. 
Jennifer looked away, embarrassed. It didn't take a detective to figure out that there was some history between them she hadn't fully explained. Their host led him through a sparkling clean foyer into an expanse of living room. The wall, ceilings, floors, and furniture were different shades of white. Even the hardwood floors were a bleached oak. The only color was found in the various plants and flowers placed around the room. Some live in pots, others colorful bouquets set in vases. I hope you had a pleasant drive, Sam said. It was fine, Jennifer assured him. They arrived at a large sectional sofa littered with row pillows, another study in white. Sam sat down in the center of it. Nate noticed that he was barefoot when he folded his legs up on the cushions. He held his hands out to guide Jennifer and Eleanor to spots on either side of him. Nate took a seat a few cushions away and was shocked to see that his mother was even more dreamy-eyed around this new-age Adonis than Jennifer was. Nate was glad to see that Sam didn't bring them into some dark, incense-scented room and seat them around a felt-covered table with crystal balls and tarot cards. This was a step up from the class of psychic his mother normally visited. Please, make yourselves comfortable. Would anyone like anything to drink? He asked. Jennifer and Eleanor shook their heads. Sam smiled, then turned to Eleanor and took her hands into his. So, Jennifer has told me about your journey, Eleanor. I feel I should warn you that my gifts don't guarantee that you will find what you want. But hopefully, you'll receive what you need. Nate struggled to keep himself from rolling his eyes and concentrated on keeping the friendly smile on his face. Did you bring what I asked? Sam inquired. Eleanor nodded. She took her hands back and reached for her purse. From within, she pulled out a pocket knife. Nate recognized it as the one that his dad always had with him. He had wondered if his mother had saved it and was glad to know she had. She placed the pocket knife on Sam's open palm and he closed his fingers over it for a second. Then he placed it onto the coffee table and took Eleanor's hands back into his. I can't reach Ben right now he told Nate's mother. I'm sorry. Eleanor became suddenly agitated. No, that's wrong. He's always with me. He told me so. I talk to him all the time. Sam smiled to her, comforting. I'm sure you do, but he's just not talking to me. The explanation seemed to comfort Nate's mother. Nate struggled again to keep the sarcasm that was welling up within him at bay. Sam cocked his head as if listening to a voice unheard by the rest of them. He smiled. I do hear the voice of the person who gave your husband that pocket knife. Betsy, Sam said simply. Is that Ben's mother? Grandma gave Dad the knife for his 13th birthday, Nate said without thinking. Eleanor nodded. Is she with Ben? Yes, Sam assured her. Can I speak with her? She is sending love, Sam answered. Tell her I want to talk to Ben, Eleanor pleaded. Sam shook his head. I'm sorry, that's not going to happen right now. I know when the spirits are willing, and for some reason, they just don't want to speak at this time. Eleanor and Jennifer looked over at Nate. He kept his expression frozen. Sam closed his eyes and drew in a deep breath. They exist in their own way, outside of time. He squeezed Eleanor's hands, then looked at her with deep compassion. You are right to believe Ben is always with you, but from his point of view, a moment passes but it's been days in your life. Do you understand? Eleanor shook her head. No, I don't. Are you saying he's in a different time zone? Sam smiled. In a matter of speaking. But instead of being off by an hour or two, it's constantly slowing down and speeding up. 
And sometimes we're moving at the same speed, at the same time, in the same place, and we can make contact. It sounds so confusing, Eleanor admitted. Harmony just lets me talk to Ben. She must be in the right place at the right time, Sam assured her. It's just not today and not here. Eleanor nodded. Thank you for trying. You're a very nice man, she said. I was very much looking forward to meeting Ben. Maybe next time, Sam offered. Thank you, Sam, Jennifer added. Always glad to make time for my favorite professor, Sam said. Can you stay for dinner? He asked. Jennifer was about to reply, but Eleanor cut her off. Actually, Nate promised to take me and Dr. Day out. Jennifer and Nate looked at her with surprise. Nate had the distinct impression that Eleanor was trying to keep Sam away from Jennifer, and knowing his mother pushed Jennifer closer to Nate. He cast a glance at Jennifer, wondering if she was thinking the same thing. Rain check? Jennifer asked. Nate stood up, eager to take advantage of the semi-awkward moment to move on from this weird experience. Yes, thank you for your hospitality, he said. Out of habit, he took a step forward and offered his hand to Sam. Sam shook Nate's hand, then gripped it firmly and wrapped it with his other hand while looking into Nate's eyes. Nate pulled his hand free. You've been to the other side, Sam said. Nate smiled knowingly. You mean when I was shot? It was on the news. Sam nodded. The figure you saw, the one that told you it wasn't your time. That was your father, Sam stated. Nate swallowed. He hadn't told anyone about that part of the dream from when he had been under anesthesia while the doctor stitched him back together. Sam was shooting in the dark. Jennifer had likely told him about the conflicts he had with his mother over the years. Injecting a comment like that was merely him doing a cold read trick, trying to catch Nate off guard. Sure, Nate said, remembering his promise to his mother and Jennifer. That's nice to know. He turned to Jennifer. Well, it sounds like I'm taking you two out to dinner. Chapter 27 Dale Everly stared at the map taped to the wall of his room. There was a lot more on the map than there was the last time he had been in Danville. New roads, subdivisions, and parks. The town had grown quickly in the years since he'd gone to prison. The edge of the town had grown closer to the old farmhouse he had shared with Maureen, and the road that led there was now home to clusters of retail stores, fast food restaurants, and car dealerships. For the last few days, Dale had been comparing his recollections of the area to what it looked like now. More importantly, he was checking for any of the places only he and Maureen knew. If Liam was right, and Maureen had left her loot from the bank somewhere he could find it, he should be able to figure it out. The obvious locations, the ones he considered during noisy nights in his cell, he quickly ruled out. One was an old roadside bar they used to hang out at that had a gazebo at the back of the parking lot. No one used it much but Maureen liked hanging out there on warm summer nights. There was a space underneath it that she could have easily tossed the duffel bag. The side of the bar was now one of those chain restaurants. Chances are when they knocked down the old place, they would have noticed a duffel bag full of cash and valuables under the old wooden structure. Then there was the bowling alley. They were in a league, not a very competitive one. It was more drinking than bowling, on Thursday nights. The bowling alley had a back room that he and Maureen would sneak off to for some alone time. And in that back room, there was a storage area that held discarded items that were decades old. The bowling alley was still there, but had undergone a major renovation of its own, and was now part of a chain that included high-tech automated scoring and pizza. If she had hidden the loot there, it would have been discovered as well. He went down the list of other possibilities, 
but either they were gone, or when he and Liam visited them, their prize was not to be found. There were just a few more possibilities left on the list Dale had made. One was their old high school. The building had been condemned shortly after they had graduated, but it was still standing pending the funding for asbestos removal. There were several hiding places in the old building, a locker, the space under the stage in the tiny auditorium, the cabinets and the kitchen. They were planning an expedition of sorts to search the school, but Dale was not optimistic. The last place on Dale's list was a long shot, an old sawmill that they had come across while hiking. It was behind a barbed wire fence, but they had found a gap in the barrier. Maureen loved exploring the old building. It was fairly dangerous, a good 4.0 earthquake away from splintering into kindling. The problem was the timeline. Dale couldn't figure out how she could have made it from the bank to the sawmill and then onto the farmhouse in anything less than an hour and a half, and that didn't include time to find a good hiding place for the duffel bag. Marie had a lot of places like the sawmill, little abandoned shacks in the woods, peaceful, isolated meadows, out-of-the-way trails leading to mountaintop vistas. Any one of them could have been a place where she might have felt like she could stash the bank loot, and not one of them was on any map. There was a knock on the open door. Dale turned and saw Liam leaning against the frame, an expectant look on his face. How's the treasure hunt going? he asked. Dale replied by waving at the map. The bank and the farmhouse were represented by white pushpins. Dale had drawn arcs around the two points, representing roughly how far one could travel in about half an hour. The house's pin was well inside the arc centered on the bank and vice versa. The two of them formed a shape that reminded Dale of an open eye. Somewhere in that eye was a treasure. A treasure that Maureen had died for. I have narrowed it down to a few hundred square miles, Dale answered. Liam whistled. That sounds like a lot. Hope you've got extra batteries for your metal detector. Dale shook his head. A lot of it we can rule out. Houses, stores, parking lots. He pointed to some squiggles on the maps that were highlighted in yellow. Those are the trails that intersect with the possible route she might have taken from the bank to the house. That's probably where we're going to find it. She loved hiking these hills and woods. I remember going on some of them with her, and I recall some spots that might have been good hiding places. What about those satellite photos of the area I printed out for you? Dale shrugged. Everything is so different, and it was a long time ago. Are you sure we should rule out the house? Liam asked. The family that's living there hired a private detective for some reason. Dale shook his head. If there was a full duffel bag hidden in there, it wouldn't take much to find it. I still think she could have left a note or a map or something, explaining where it was, Liam suggested. Was there some hiding place you guys had? The idea that she had gone back to leave him a note of some kind was something that Dale had considered. There were several spots he could think of, but if what Liam had told him about the extent of the remodeling the foreman's had done was correct, there was little chance it would have gone undiscovered. Still, if he could get inside, maybe it would stir his memory. It's possible, he conceded. But if they found something like that, why keep it quiet? And why would the P.I. go to your chief and tip his hand? Liam shrugged. I just find it hard to believe that it's not connected somehow. He looked the map over. I'll keep an ear out, but in the meantime, we can hike these trails ourselves, see what we can find. Hope you've got a good pair of boots. Chapter 28 Nate took his mother and Jennifer to a restaurant he had been meaning to visit for years. It was expensive, but he needed the extravagance. 
a departure from his daily grind to take his mind off the events of the last couple of days. He had money put away for a rainy day, and recently it was a never-ending deluge. Maybe dipping into his investments and pulling out some cash would help relieve the stress. He had already tapped some funds for the new car, but there were a few holdings that had done exceedingly well for him over the years, and with his current income level, the capital gains tax wouldn't be too hard a hit. Jennifer and Eleanor had allowed him to order for them. Eleanor said she'd always wanted someone to do that for her, and was delighted with Nate's selections. Jennifer was a little more hesitant about the idea, but Eleanor persuaded her to trust Nate's taste, and she was surprised at how perfectly the dishes Nate picked out for her went together. But what really impressed her was his wine choices. Jennifer had worked as a sommelier in her younger days, but Nate's knowledge went far beyond what she would expect from a man on a police detective's salary. They spent most of the meal listening to Eleanor tell stories about her and Ben, and the meals she used to put together by clipping coupons and buying giant cans of things like tapioca pudding and lard. The memories made Nate cringe. The meal left all of them in a great mood, especially Eleanor, who had more wine than Nate and Jennifer put together. The disappointment of not being able to talk to Ben had fallen away. They dropped Eleanor off at her house. Nate walked her inside and made sure she locked up after him. When he got back to the car, he turned to Jennifer with a somewhat shocked expression. What is it? Jennifer asked. I just realized. I don't know where you live. I've been to your offices when you had them. I've been on stakeouts with you. You've been to my house almost every day for the last few months. But I've never been to yours. Where to? He asked like an eager Uber driver. Jennifer froze. She had given up her apartment and was sleeping in her microbus, so there was nowhere to take her. Your place, she said. I can drive myself home. Actually, if I were to breathalyze you right now, I'd have to arrest you. I'm okay, Jennifer insisted. You can grab an Uber in the morning, or Dave can give you a ride. I guess, Jennifer agreed, not wanting to push it any further. She remembered an apartment building she had looked at a few years ago when she was thinking about moving closer to campus. It wasn't too far from where they were now. It's over on Geary, by the campus, she told them. Okay. Nate put the car back into gear and steered them on a route toward the heart of the city. He noticed that Jennifer had become suddenly silent and wondered if his offer to drive her home was inappropriate, something she considered beyond the boundaries of their friendship. The conversation he had had with Dave on the drive to Danville had gotten him thinking that maybe Jennifer was interested in him, and to be honest, it had gotten him thinking that maybe he was interested in her, too. Thanks for letting me order for you. I know it's kind of a throwback thing to do, but my mom. It was nice, Jennifer assured him. I got to try something I would never have ordered myself. Thank you. You're welcome, Nate said. I'm glad you enjoyed it. There was another period of awkward silence as Nate tried to come up with something else to say. It was strange. Normally, during the times they were both in the office they shared in Nate's house, they were never at a loss for something to talk about. Nate actually found her academic field of anthropology intensely interesting, and her excitement for the topic was contagious. He wondered about her and Sam, and whether she would have accepted his invitation to dinner if Eleanor hadn't contrived an alternative. But she did decide to join them, and appeared to have a good time. But now, she seemed like she was in a different place. Maybe her good mood was just an act for his mother. You want to turn here, Jennifer said, breaking the silence. Thanks, Nate replied. He steered his car onto another road and kept driving in silence. He glanced over and saw Jennifer nervously nibbling at her cuticles. 
After another couple of miles, they arrived at a high-rise apartment complex. The first level was floor-to-ceiling windows, and in the corner where the entrance was, there was a guard, or concierge, manning a desk, where he could screen visitors and accept packages. It was a nice building, and Nate was glad to see that a tenured college professor made enough to afford a place like this. Do you want me to walk you in? Nate asked, instantly regretting how forward it sounded. I'm fine, she said. I'll see you tomorrow. Oh, I almost forgot to tell you. Dave heard back from the foremans. They decided to let us visit this weekend. Great, Nate said. Yes, Jennifer agreed. Then she took a deep breath and let herself out of the car. Nate waited at the curb for her to enter, making sure she got in safely, still debating whether she thought he was being a gentleman or just creepy. Jennifer walked to the building entrance and gave Nate a little wave. He waved back but remained at the curb, waiting. She entered the building and walked up to the concierge. Hello, she said. Good evening. How may I help you? Jennifer considered telling him the truth, that she was trying to deceive a friend who thought she lived here, but that sounded a bit on the pathetic side. Do you see that SUV parked on the curb? She asked. The concierge looked out the window at where Nate was still parked. Yes? Tinder date. I know, bad idea, but he seemed nice. He was getting a bit clingy, so I kind of told him I live here, so he doesn't find out where I really live. The concierge nodded. Do you want me to call the police? He asked. No, no, I don't think that's necessary. But I think he's going to wait until I go inside. So do you think you can buzz me to the elevators? Once he's gone, I'll be out of your hair. The concierge considered her request and nodded. He pressed a button on the underside of his desk, and the door buzzed. Jennifer walked toward it, not stopping to look back at Nate. She waited on the other side for a good five minutes, using the time to call Heather Long, her new friend in the anthropology department, and ask if she could crash on her couch. When she re-entered the lobby, Nate was gone. She smiled to the concierge. Thank you. No problem. Careful who you swipe right. I will. She called up the Uber app on her phone and requested a trip to the address Heather had given her and stepped out into the night air, thinking this actually wouldn't be a bad place to live. Maybe once she got things straightened out with Dave's stipend, she'd take another look. Chapter 29 Marcia and Greg were outside working on the garden. Maureen let Danny know the coast was clear. Danny followed his friend down to the living room, in the corner where Marcia had her home office. The boy became reluctant when he saw where Maureen was leading him. I'm not supposed to play around Mommy's stuff, he said. It's okay, Maureen assured him. We're just going to go online for a minute. Danny backed away. I'm not allowed to go on the internet, he said. That's for grown-ups. Well, I'm a grown-up, Maureen pointed out. But I need your help to do something on the computer. She showed Danny how her fingers were unable to affect the keyboard. Danny considered her logic. It seemed okay. His parents always told him how important it was to help people. Okay, he said. But I don't know my mom's password. That's all right. Just type what I tell you, Maureen said. She had watched Marcia log onto the computer and memorize the password that she had typed in. She instructed Danny to tap each of the characters on the keyboard and the computer unlocked. Okay, we need to open the web browser. It's that icon on the bottom that looks like... I know what it is. Danny told her, and he used the mouse to click open the browser. What do you want to search for? Dr. Jennifer Day, Maureen told him. She spelled the last name for him. That's a funny way to spell it, Danny said. The search results came up with a page of links. The first one was to her website. 
Click on the first one, Maureen said. Danny moved the mouse over the blue underlined text and clicked. The website for Jennifer Day filled the screen. It featured a blog of the cases she investigated mixed with articles and commentary from other sources. Maureen saw the link at the top of the page she was looking for labeled staff. Click on the staff link, she told Danny. Danny scanned the page and found the word Maureen had mentioned. He clicked on it and the new page snapped onto the screen. In the center of it was a picture of Dr. Jennifer Day and her staff. It was obvious which one was the college professor. She was confident and professional. She wore a jacket over a turtleneck top and tweed slacks. The only thing that stood out were the red shoes, a sharp contrast to the muted tones of the rest of her clothes. The other element that stood out was the necklace that hung around her neck with a symbol that looked like a pitchfork or a trident. To her right was a young man, a couple inches shorter than her and prematurely balding. He had a closed mouth, nervous smile and wore a plain sweatshirt over his very new-looking blue jeans. The caption under the photo identified him as Dave Edwards. To her left was a younger woman who had a very dark look. Her hair was black, her eyeliner heavy, and her dark clothes matched her overall mood. Her expression was completely blank, as if being in this photo was a burden. Her name was Emily Vargas. There was another person in the photo, sort of. He was standing behind the rest of them, wore an unbranded baseball cap and dark sunglasses. According to the text below the picture, his name was Bits. Maureen took a moment to memorize their faces. There was something else on the site that caught her attention. It was a link referencing rainy day investigations. Click on those gold letters on the right, Maureen said to Danny. He moved the mouse to the text she was talking about. This? he asked. Yes. Danny clicked on the link and it opened on a new website. This one a little less cluttered. It was for what looked like a private investigation firm. Can you scroll down? Maureen asked. Danny used the wheel on the mouse to move the page down. There were side-by-side portraits of Rainey and Day. Day she knew. It was Dr. Jennifer Day, Ph.D., parapsychologist. Rainey was a man who looked to be about the same age as the professor. He wore an expensive-looking suit. The caption under it identified him as Nate Rainey, private investigator. That explained Rainey Day investigations. Anything else? Danny asked. Maureen had what she needed. She wanted to know what the people Marsha and Greg had invited to talk to Danny looked like. No, that's all. Thanks, Danny. You're welcome, he said, then ran off back up to his room. In many ways, Maureen was still learning about what being a ghost meant. She had discovered that she could go outside the house, but she hadn't really tested the limits beyond the front and backyards. How many years had passed in the living world while she was in that bedroom? It felt like the blink of an eye to her but she wondered if she had been there the whole time since she had died, or if she was somewhere else and the presence of the foremans had drawn her back or woke her up. She had learned that she didn't need to physically move through the house. She could follow Danny as he walked from his room to the kitchen and out to the backyard, but if she thought of herself downstairs or outside, that's where she would be. The notion of venturing outside the property frightened her. She was afraid that she was somehow tied to Danny and would lose that connection if she was too far away from him. But she was also afraid of the people the foremans had invited to their home to investigate her. Would they be able to see her like Danny could? Did they have the means to send her away? According to what she overheard between Marcia and Greg, they would be here today, and Maureen would be ready. Chapter 30 Dave inspected the large, foam-padded case that held their video and audio recording equipment to make sure everything was there. 
He checked off a couple lines on the list on his clipboard, then closed and secured the lid. He stood it on end and tilted it forward so he could position a hand truck underneath it and wheel it out of Nate's house. Can someone get the door for me? He shouted. There was no reply. He knew Emily and Bits were both around getting ready for the field investigation. They were supposed to be leaving for Danville soon. Emily, a hand? He called out. Again, either she couldn't hear him, or more likely was ignoring his pleas. Dave left the large case in the middle of the room, then went to open the front door and prop open the storm door. Once he had a clear path, he tilted the crate back on the hand truck and started rolling it out of the house. It stopped when he hit the raised threshold of the front door, the weight of the crate keeping it from easily rolling over the obstacle. Dave backed it up and made the approach at a higher speed. The hand truck bounced over the threshold and the crate tipped precariously. Dave tried to wrangle back control, but the momentum pulled it forward and the crate rocked, nearly breaking the glass of the outer door. He managed to regain his hold on the crate and settle it back into the crook of the hand truck. After easing it down the steps, Dave guided his load along the cement path until he hit the street. Dr. Dave's van was parked at the curb. Dave set the crate on its edge on the grass nearby and walked up to the van to open the rear doors. They were locked. He walked around to the front of the van to try the passenger side door, but it too was locked. He scratched his head, puzzled. Dr. Day normally left the van open for Dave on mornings when they had a trip into the field. He was reluctant to leave the case of video gear just laying out on the front lawn, so he tilted it back up on the hand truck and pushed it up the walkway to the front door. He carefully pulled it up the steps and up and over the threshold into the house. He saw Emily on the sofa in the living room, flipping through a magazine. Where were you? Dave asked. I needed a hand getting this gear out to the van. Emily raised an eyebrow when he mentioned the van, remembering the fact that Dr. Day had sworn her to secrecy about her current living conditions as it related to Dave's stipend and tuition reimbursement. You went in the van? She asked. No, it's locked. Do you know where the keys are? No, Emily replied. You know where Dr. Day is? No. Do you know what time we're supposed to leave? No. Dave gave up talking to Emily and shouted at the top of his lungs. Does anyone know what's going on around here? Dave, lower the volume, Nate said, emerging from the kitchen with a cup of coffee. He saw the crate blocking the front door. Shouldn't that be out in the van? The van's locked. Have you seen Dr. Day? She hasn't come in yet, Nate asked. Her van's here, Dave answered. We went out to dinner with my mother last night. I dropped her off at her apartment. She was planning on getting a ride back here in the morning. Her apartment? Emily asked in surprise. You dropped her off? Emily wondered if she somehow had gotten a new place in the last few days. Yes, Nate said as if the question was offensive. And she went inside? Of course. Did she ask you up? Dave asked. Nate and Emily shot Dave a look. What? He said to Emily. You were thinking it too. He's right, she said. I was thinking it. Did she? No. And frankly, if she had, it's none of your business. True. But technically, I work part-time for a private detective, so the snooping kind of comes with the territory, Emily said. Any idea when she's coming in? Dave asked. I'd like to get the gear loaded. I think there's a spare set of keys in the office, Nate said. He set down his coffee and turned ahead to the back of the house. Emily cut him off. She wanted to take your SUV, she said to Nate. She did? She didn't say anything last night. She mentioned it a couple of days ago. The van's been making weird noises. It always makes weird noises, Dave said. Plus, it's almost an hour drive. 
No back seats, no seat belts. Safety first, Emily added. Dave and Nate both looked at her inquisitively. Nate could sense there was something going on, but he couldn't quite put his finger on it. Jennifer entered the house, squeezing past the equipment crate. Why isn't this in the van? she asked. It's locked, Dave explained. Jennifer opened her purse to fish out her keys. Dr. Day, Emily said. I thought you said you didn't want to take the van. You know, because of the strange noises that may be coming from the stuff in the back. Jennifer froze, remembering that even though she had spent the night in a real bed for the first time in months, her actual bedroom was in the microbus, and she hadn't had time to stuff it into the tiny storage locker where some of her other stuff was. Of course, Jennifer said. She turned to Nate. Do you mind if we use your car? Not at all, Nate said. He pulled his keys out and tossed them to Dave. What time are we leaving? You're coming? Jennifer asked. Sure. Last time I checked the front door, this was still rainy day investigations. Plus, I've already got a contact at the local police station. Yes, of course. That would be great. I always want you to come along. But you usually... Don't want to go, Emily said, finishing Jennifer's sentence. Seem to be busy, Jennifer corrected. Well, I want to, and I'm not busy. I think maybe it's time I lend a hand more directly. You're curious about the whole bank robbery connection, Jennifer said. That too, Nate admitted. Great. Nate looked at Jennifer. Aren't those the same clothes you were wearing last night? Without skipping a beat, she replied. Same shoes, different top and slacks. She made a point of looking at her clothes. I guess they are similar. Your wardrobe is so boring, Emily agreed. Bits walked by carrying a crate of cables. I thought you just wore the same thing every day like Jeff Goldblum in The Fly. Everyone watched Bits pass through and out the front door. Yay, road trip, Emily added. Thank you for listening to Afterlife, a rainy day investigation on the Bedtime Stories for Insomniacs fiction podcast. Remember to subscribe, share, rate, and review not only this podcast, but the novel you are currently listening to. The links to Amazon, Audible, and Goodreads are in the description for this episode. You can sign up for the Insomniac's Snoozeletter at BedtimeStories.studio and get a free bookmark. And if you want to know more about the Rainy Day Investigations Paranormal Mystery Book Series, visit RainyAndDay.com. That's R-A-N-E-Y and D-A-Y-E dot com. You can find out more about the host of Bedtime Stories for Insomniacs at richhosick.com. Thanks again, and all the very best.